Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this year. Thank you for these um, ladies and their love for you, their desire to want to walk closely with you. Uh, Father, they, they feel the need, as um, I feel my need um, each day, to have to shepherd um, my heart and their heart, because um, in this mixed condition that we are in, sin always pulls us down and away from you. And, um, and it's not like that sin is coming at us from the outside only, but even within our own selves, we still have indwelling sin. And so the enemy is within. And so, God, we are compelled each day um, to fight for nearness to you, obedience to you, um, love for you, worship of you. And we confess to you joyfully this morning, God, that we are glad for the fight because before Christ came into our lives, there was no fight. We only ran headlong as fast as we could toward our sin, and we gave no thought to you. And so, though we may prefer and enjoy and even anticipate greatly um, a new unmixed condition coming when we die or when we are resurrected, Lord, we, we still confess that this place we are in now today is better than where we used to be. And so with thankful hearts, Lord, we are here before your word and we ask that you would open our eyes to help us see what you desire us to see about you, the God of all glory, your son, Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and your Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, First of all, I mean, we just want to give thanks to we're thankful to God for um, Chris and Jamie. Thank you both for you. You uh, led these ladies well, I know, and it was you led them during a year when it was not easy to lead, let alone maybe just try to survive each day at points. And just so grateful for you and what you did. So thank you. And um, in Wellspring, you have three disciplines. Um, in Build, we have six, and. Um, that's because guys need more help and they need more rules. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, so in one sense, the vision and the purpose, which is discipline six for build, and you'll see that it says that at the top of yours, you don't have discipline six. But I want to, it's important for you to understand where you fit in, in, and how even Wellspring fits into what the church is about. And so that's really what today's um, lesson is on, is where does Wellspring and and how do the, the disciplines that we're trying to encourage you with, with Wellspring, how do they fit into the context of what Grace Bible Church is? Um, because I think disciplines one, two, and three are, are biblical. They're, they're right. And any Christian woman at any church should and could do something like this, right? But you're not at any church. You're at one church in specific. You're at Grace Bible Church. And so it's important for you to understand where and how Wellspring fits in to what Grace Bible Church says Grace Bible Church is all about. And um, you get this on a day-in and day-out basis without it being formally told. You, I think, are exposed to the glory of God in the scriptures. I think you are exposed to Jesus Christ crucified. I think you understand and hear the need for dependence upon the Holy Spirit to live a, a, a Christian life, the Christian life. 
drawing in, building up, sending out, but what we want to do today is, is be more formal and put it out in front of you and, and let you see that. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to take that main statement that you see on our bulletin every week, a biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ, and we're just going to break it into two big chunks and then just dissect it, okay? So we're going to start first, number one, with a biblical vision of God. And whenever you use the word vision, you always probably these days need to stop and talk about what you don't mean by vision. So what we don't mean by vision is something subjective, unverifiable, like a dream-like vision. We, we don't mean that. Um, uh, we also do not mean um, like uh, what biblical visions are in the Old Testament, like Daniel had a vision. We don't even mean that for us. Um, because those uh, were inscripturated by God, they were inspired visions, and they are verifiable because they are in Scripture. So there is a place for visions in Scripture. We're not talking about we think we have one of those that's on the same par with that. We don't think about that at all. So what do we mean by vision? We mean a biblical vision in this sense. With a key word, like the word vision, we mean like sight. We want to keep our sights on the Bible. And on another level, we want to see everything in life through the Bible. So we're going to set our sights on something objective, the Bible. And then we want to see the Bible also like a pair of glasses that we put on and we look through the Bible into life. We want to have a biblical vision of life. Um, So we want the Bible um, to be the controlling line of authority. That that is um, a a statement that I use with the guys a lot, especially when we get to hermeneutics. Um, But the controlling line of authority, that's a helpful phrase for you. When you listen to another person talk about the Christian life, or when you're reading a book um, by a Christian author, when you hear me speak, when you hear your, your husband speak, ask yourself this question. As they're talking and as they're giving their position on life and what we should do or shouldn't do, ask yourself the question, where's his or her controlling line of authority? And what we mean by a biblical vision is our controlling line of authority on what we do and say and not do and not say is the Bible. Okay? Um, This is not, and let me give you a contrast. It's not a theological vision. This is a biblical vision. What we're saying is, is we're going to have the controlling line of authority in everything we do be the Bible, not a theological system. Okay? Um, everybody draws theological conclusions when they read their Bible. Did you know that you do that? You draw theological conclusions. You read um, something in Leviticus and it says, um, God is holy, for I am holy. You draw a theological conclusion. Oh, the holiness of God. You come back to Scripture with that theological understanding. And it influences the way you read next sections of Scripture that you're in. You're impacted by your theological conclusion, right? But what we're saying is, not even your theological conclusions are your controlling line of authority. You might be right, and it might not need to change a bit, but your theological conclusion is not your controlling line of authority. The Bible still is. So what does that mean you do with your theological conclusions that you draw from your Bible? When you come back to Scripture, what do you do with those theological conclusions? you got one of two options. You're either going to hold it with a white-knuckled grip and you're going to let that theological conclusion go 
when you come to the Bible. And if you do that, what might you do with the Bible then? You might distort it, you might twist it, you might make it mushy to fit whatever theological conclusion you think you've derived. Or you can come to the Bible with your theological conclusion that, you draw, that you've drawn and you can put your hands open before the Bible and say, here's the theological conclusions I've drawn. I'm not opening my hand because I'm not sure if I'm right or not. I'm not opening my hand because theological conclusions don't matter. They do. But I'm holding them because, God, I want your word to be the controlling line of authority over this conclusion. And I want your word to speak to it again. And I have no fear. If the Bible said that God is holy, if I come back to the Bible with the holiness of God held open in my hands, what's the Bible going to do with that theological conclusion? It's only going to affirm it. It's only going to strengthen it. In fact, it's going to make it bigger. And you're going to need to not have a hand hold on it. You're going to need to give it a bear hug because it's bigger than you thought it was. So every time you have a theological conclusion, you come back to the Bible and you open it up and you say, God, let your word speak to my theological conclusions again. And that is what we part of what we mean by saying we have a biblical vision. We want the Bible to be our controlling line of authority always. Um, so when we come back to the word of God, we let the word of God speak with authority over everything that we believe. Um, Otherwise, if you do it the other way, you're going to reshape text. You're going to find yourself saying, well, I know the text says this, but my theological conclusion says this, so I'll find a way to make this text fit my theological conclusion. And you can't do that. But we do it all the time. It happens, uh, unfortunately. And it's a biblical vision of, what's it say? Of God. Okay, of God. The emphasis is on God. What if we read our Bibles and we notice with great accuracy and conviction creation? And then we read a little bit further and we see Israel. And then we see Mosaic Law. And then we see all kinds of covenants that God makes. And then we see the church in the New Testament. And then we read all the way to the end and we see the end. What if we see all of those things with great accuracy, but we have not seen the God of creation? or the God of Israel, or the God of the covenants, or the God of the church, or the God of the end. You see, um, you missed the most significant revelation that the Bible was actually trying to make. Yes, the Bible wants to reveal to you that there's creation, but it's the God who made creation. It's the creator. God wants to reveal that there was a people called Israel, but what he's most concerned about is that you would see the God of Israel, and so forth. Do you understand? So it's a biblical vision of God. What are any one of these things without God? They're empty. They're hollow things. Um, And so this kind of ties into discipline one, right? You want to come to the word of God to be able to see God more clearly. Um, And so that's why in our biblical vision of God, it's triune. It's Trinitarian. It's the glory of God. And by that, we'll talk about in a minute that we mean the Father. Um, in the Son who is crucified um, with, and the Holy Spirit for transformation of life. We have those three points. And there's three because we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So let's dig into the glory of God. What do we mean by that? And this is where we are putting emphasis on um, God the Father. We're not trying to say that Jesus doesn't have glory himself. You'll see that he does. Uh, or that the Spirit is not glorious. Uh, he is as well. But what we mean here in particular is, is the Father's glory. 
Um, and so well, one of the things I would encourage you to do as you read your Bible, just in your margin or wherever, take a, a highlighter or a pen and just look for the word glory. Take another piece of paper and write down the word glory and then Genesis. When you find the word glory, write down the reference and just categorize for yourself how many times and where the word glory comes up. It'll be an amazing study just to watch it as you move from left to right through your Bible. Um, what, does it, what does glory mean? Glory means weightiness. It means worth. These are key words to think of when you think of glory. Weighty, worth, splendor, impressiveness. So it's God's weightiness, it's God's worth, it's God's splendor, it's God's impressiveness, and most often in the Bible, that is expressed through light or radiance. Okay. Um, whenever um, a character in Scripture is uh, in the presence of the glory of God, it's often white light. His clothes became like clothes that had been laundered and more white than anyone on earth could ever make, says about Jesus. Um, Moses goes up onto the mountain. He sees God. He comes down from the mountain and he's what? He's glowing himself because he was in the radiant splendor and worth and impressiveness of God himself. So we know that, um, for instance, John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time. And we know in Exodus 33.20 that no man can see me and live, God says to Moses up on the mountain. So what God has done, we cannot, in this condition that you and I are in, we cannot handle God directly. This is why from Sunday, we need the resurrected body. Because it can. Okay? So we take on the glory of God, or we take on the the actual presence of God in this condition, we die. So what does God do to reveal himself? He communicates himself through his glory. Okay, We can't take him full on, so he displays himself. He gives a communication of himself in radiance. And when a person is in the presence of that radiance, they fall to their face. They feel this is a very weighty moment. This is so impressive. This is so splendor. I think I'm going to die. But they survive. God says to Moses in Exodus 33, you can't see my face and live, but I'll put you in the hollow of the rock and as I pass by, what's left of me, trailing me, my glory, you'll see. Okay? God put his glory in the temple, in the tent, and whatnot. Uh, the Old Testament teaching on this is Exodus 33. I've mentioned that several times. I'll let you go um, read that chapter. That, and by the way, that's a very interesting where that sits is very important. Don't ignore chapter 32. It's the golden calf. And God says at the end of 32, I'm not going with you into the promised land because I will kill you if I go with you. And Moses pleads and says, these are your people, they're not mine. And, and how will we be seen to be any different than any other nation except if you're with us? What makes us different than the other nations is not that we're good people. What makes us different is that, well, we have you. And if you don't go with us, how will... Show me your glory. Moses, it's an amazing passage. Just bask in it for a while. Um, it's a great chapter. New Testament teaching on the glory of God in, in, re, in relation to Jesus' glory, John chapter 1, 
uh, verse 14, we beheld the glory of God in him. John chapter 12 is about Isaiah seeing his glory. Uh, The Luke 9 passage is the transfiguration of Jesus when he goes up onto a mountain and he takes James and John and Peter and they decide they're going to build little tents for for, for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, putting them on an equal plane. God says, that's not the way I see my son. He's greater than Moses and he's greater than Elijah. They go away. Jesus is revealed in glory in that passage. There's future glory even tied with Jesus. Um, he'll come in glory uh, in, and in judgment, Matthew 16. Matthew 24 is the, he'll gather his, uh, in glory, he'll gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. In Matthew 25, there's glory in the sheep and goat judgment as he sets up his glorious um, self to judge. Revelation 21 is the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and there's no need for light, there's no need for sun because why? God himself is the splendor and the light and the radiance and Jesus is the lamp of that city, it says. If you pair any of those together, pair Exodus 33 with Luke 9. Exodus 33 is is Moses up on a mountain and God reveals his glory. Luke 9 is Jesus up on a mountain and who shows up? Moses. And there's glory. Okay. If you're going to pair up another set, <clears throat> it's Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, that's his vision where he's in the temple and he sees God in all of his glory and the tr- train of his robe is just filling the temple. You pair Isaiah 6 with John 12 because that's where John says, um, or I think it's John speaking at that point, um, that Isaiah saw his glory, meaning Jesus' glory. The glory in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah saw is the glory of Jesus. So you can pair those passages together. Now, big deal. What does this mean? Practically speaking, it means this. Position yourself, ladies, every day to just drink in the glory of God. Just don't leapfrog over that. Go to the Bible, and as you want to see God, say, show me your glory. I want to just see, first and foremost, before I do anything, I need to gain a glimpse of your glorious being. I, I just need to see your glory. We are, we are a do-oriented people, and we understand this. Glorify God. We understand this. Glorify God. I, that means I need to praise God. I need to honor Him. I need to lift Him up. Listen, What impact would this make on your glorifying God if first you just drank in his glory in scripture? How would that impact your glorifying of God? Oh my goodness, you would be armed and well-equipped to do that, would you not, in a way? So don't, don't leapfrog over just basking in and soaking in the glory of God in scripture. It's interesting that the, the men and the women most um, equipped throughout church history and most effective for God throughout even all of redemptive history, even in your Bible, were those men and women who hungered and thirst to see the glory of God, to know the God of all glory. That's the kind of woman you want to be. What about the cross of Christ? Um, How is Christ's death then related to God's glory? Um, We have the glory of God, the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, the glory of God in Scripture is inseparably tied to, are you ready? The glory of God in Scripture is inseparably tied to blood. The blood that is shed by a substitute. You say, well, what's the proof of that? 
well, how about just the uh, with it by the by the second um, book of the Bible? God says, um, I'm going to dwell in a tent in the middle of all of your tents, and I'm going to put my glory there. And then what I want you to do is I want you to shed blood where my glory is, the blood of a substitute. Bring an innocent sacrifice and slit its throat and spill its blood before me in all of my glory. God tied his glory with blood, the blood of a substitute being shed. So God fused these things together. In other words, you can't talk about God's glory in Scripture very long without getting to the Lamb of God who shed his blood to take away the sin of the world. Okay, Because that's what God was thinking in his mind all along, wasn't it? God's best thought was not, hey, you know what, goats and bulls and little lambs. Yes. And then he got a better idea later. No, my son. No, all along he had the heavenly idea in mind, the heavenly copy of what heaven was. And he said, here's the, here's the plan. Here's what it is in heaven. Make a copy of it, Moses. And we had the tent. And his whole plan all along was the sacrifice that God, the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. All of these other little animals were the ones that would, their blood would point constantly to the best blood, the ultimate blood. So let me tell you what we mean by um, the cross of Christ, what, what we're not saying. We're not merely interested in a cross. Um, I think sometimes people in our um, camp where we're at, we can be accused of making a big deal about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. And we don't say what makes the cross significant. It's the cross of Christ. It's Jesus' cross, right? So we'd, we're not just merely talking about a, a Roman crucifixion instrument, right? Um, and by, by mentioning the cross, we're not trying to diminish the empty tomb. Um, the empty tomb is very important as well. Um, what we're saying, though, is that the cross makes no sense without the right one on it, Jesus, and the empty tomb makes no sense unless the one who burst forth from it was the one who was crucified for forgiveness of sins. Lazarus' resurrection does nothing for you, does nothing for me. Jesus' resurrection does. Why? Because Jesus died the death that only Jesus could die. The Old Testament type of this is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. You'll see the word there in that chapter occurring 15 times. Uh, New Testament teaching on this is Hebrews 9. In fact, let's go there. Let's take a look at that. We'll try to pause in some places and, and take a look at these passages. Hebrews 9. Let's look at verses... 22 and then 24 to 26. If you're even back up to 18, verse 18, there's the Old Testament idea of blood being shed under the Old Covenant. Verse 22, and according to law or the law, one almost uh, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is the way that it works. That's the way God has things regulated. Uh, verse 24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Okay, that's what Moses did and all the priests in the Old Testament. Um, those things were a mere copy of the true one. But Christ entered into heaven itself. And now he's there to appear in the presence of God for us. 
And nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, meaning at the right time, he has been manifested, revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, by the shedding of blood, of his own blood. Um, Here's a key theological phrase you need to understand. Are you ready? Penal substitutionary atonement. P-E-N-A-L, that's penal. Substitutionary, I'll let you spell that one because I'll probably get it wrong. (laughs) Atonement. Now, why is that important? That is a, a tremendous phrase that helps summarize what Jesus did at the cross. Penal means penalty. A penalty has to be paid because of sin. However, who pays the penalty? The one who created the penalty? No. A substitute. That's where it's substitutionary. A substitute must pay that penalty. Right? What can that substitute pay with? Can he pay with money? Can he go to a special holy site and offer some money? and have the penalty no it's with sacrifice the shedding of blood the substitute's blood not the substitute coming and bringing somebody else's blood but the substitute bringing his own blood and that's Jesus so Jesus is our penal substitutionary atonement Uh, well that's what atonement means the the sacrifice there atonement means another way you can think of atonement is is just take the first part of it at one It's, it's a way of making the one who's committed the penalty be at one with God Penal substitutionary atonement. Um, key words with the word atonement are words like expiation. That's E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N, expiation. That means the taking away of guilt and sin. That, in the Day of Atonement, was when the priest laid his hands on and confessed the sins of Israel on the scapegoat, and then they chased that goat out into the wilderness with the presumption that out there by itself in the wilderness it would die and no longer be in the camp's sight. So it's a picture of sin and guilt being taken away. Another key word with atonement is propitiation. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N Propitiation. That means wrath satisfied. The cup is empty. The cup has been all poured out. Those two ideas are built into atonement. A penalty had to be paid. It had to be paid by a substitute. It could only come in his sacrifice as his blood took sin and guilt out of God's sight and satisfied God's cup of wrath. Okay, That's what we mean by the cross. That's the New Testament teaching and the Old Testament teaching. What what does this mean practically speaking? Again, it's not something you go do first. It's what? Something you just soak in first. In fact, I want to have you look at Galatians 6. I love what Paul says in Galatians 6. Verse 14 and 15. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just full stop. Why? What, should you, what impact should the cross of Jesus Christ make? Every day you draw near to the Bible so that you can boast in the cross of your Lord who paid the penalty for you in your place, taking away your guilt and shame and satisfying God's wrath against you. Just boast in the glory 
of Jesus Christ in the cross through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And he says, look, circumcision isn't anything, nor is uncircumcision. What's, what's, what's important is a new creation. And that leads us to the transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you ladies have any questions or whatever, you can ask at any time. You can interrupt me. That's, that's fine if you want to do that, okay? Um, transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. What, this is all about the role of the Spirit. We've talked about the God of, and Father of all glory. We've talked about the Son who was crucified. But what, how is the Holy Spirit a part of this biblical vision? Um, well, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? The role of the Holy Spirit is to apply the atoning work of Jesus to the one that God is saving. Right? God the Father had a glorious plan. God the Son came and died on a cross. That in and of itself, listen carefully to what I say so we don't misunderstand. Just the fact that that happened does not mean that anybody got saved. What means is that the Spirit comes and he applies that work to the ones that God intends to save. Okay? Um, it, it doesn't save until the Spirit comes and applies it. Um, propitiation is brought. Expiation is brought. Atonement in the hands of, of the Holy Spirit is a powerful, powerful thing. And it brings a, a massive salvation. Um, Salvation, what happens when Jesus saves a sinner is oftentimes um, diminished. And here's what I mean. Let's think about your past. Here's, here's what I was told when I believed the gospel uh, when I was 19. Uh, this is what I was told. Believe in Jesus and you will have forgiveness of sins and you will get eternal life. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Don't want to diminish that. What that does is that takes you where you currently are at and it turns you around and says, and you will have forgiveness of sins. Everything you have ever done is forgiven. Expiated propitiation, you, you are forgiven. And you will have eternal life. And what is mostly meant by that is, okay, now turn around and look to your future. Eternal life, what do you get? Heaven. Okay? And we rejoice in that. And then you stand there after a while and you go, why do I keep sinning today? I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven. What happens today? And so what the church has done, unfortunately, for, for a long time, is has diminished what biblical salvation is by not putting an emphasis on the present expression of salvation, which is primarily reflected through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to progressively sanctify us, Right? So the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to cause us to be born again, to apply the atoning work of Jesus Christ to our lives, um, and then to powerfully and progressively make us more and more and more and more holy. Okay? Now, let me give you um, two distinct, let me distinguish uh, two works of, of the Holy Spirit, regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration is, is being born again. It's, it's John 3, what, what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You, you must be born again. Um, that has only one set of fingerprints on it. Regeneration does. Um, and that would be God, the Holy Spirit. My fingerprints were not on my regeneration, and neither were yours. Any more than your child's birth, if you've had a child, 
um, had a cause in making it all happen and birthing himself or herself. Mom, dad do that. Parent does that. God, the Father, by the Spirit, has his set of fingerprints on regeneration. Let's talk about um, progressive sanctification. Once you are born again, now your process of becoming more and more holy, your process of fighting for obedience, and your process of fighting against sin has how many sets of fingerprints on it? Two. God's and yours. Okay, you see the difference? There's a big difference there, and it's important to understand that. Let me, let me draw a distinction between these two works of the Holy Spirit. And, and by the way, this isn't all that the Holy Spirit does, obviously, but I just want to emphasize these two works. Regeneration, is it an event? Boom. One thing? Or is it a process of being born again over time? It's the event, right? Progressive sanctification, is it an event? Or is it... Progressive sanctification. That one's easier. Especially when you put the word progressive on there, huh? Okay, so that's very important. The biggest errors that come are when we what? When we, when we mix those two things up. You have some people who believe that they have actually attained to holiness in this life perfection. It can be because they see it as an event when it is actually a process. And there are some people who mix up being born again, and you can actually get unborn again because it's always a process. So don't make the event a process because the scriptures don't reveal the being born again as a process. It's an event. So view it as an event. And then view your progression of holiness as a, as a process as well. Does that make sense? Now, what should this? What impact should this make practically speaking? Um, let me back up first. Just I want to point a couple passages to you. In the Old Testament, it anticipates a, a fuller ministry, clearer ministry of the Holy Spirit in the promise of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. Uh, in Ezekiel 36, you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. In the very next chapter, after 36, chapter 37 of Ezekiel, you have the dead bones that start to rattle, and then there's flesh that's brought to them, and then a whole army of for God stands, and... His whole point is, is God says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your land. He makes that promise to Israel. So there's an anticipation that God is going to come with his spirit and put his law on their hearts, etc. In the New Testament, Jesus picks up with this and he talks about being born again with Nicodemus. Titus 3, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Right, uh, Romans 8, you, if you live by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Um, Galatians 3, Paul says, um, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Right? You don't want to do that. Um, 1 Peter 1, 2 says that we were chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the Spirit has a, a, a rich and robust role in salvation. Uh, and he is often in our camps where we're at, he is often the most neglected member of the Godhead. And that's unfortunate. Um, or if he does get attention, he gets attention for a, a narrow ministry of, of what he has, which is the gifting of believers. 
We don't want to diminish that. That's very important. But if we only think of him as the one who gives me, you know, gifts, then we're missing out on the primary thing of what happened before we even got the gifts, that he caused us to be born again. We're being progressively sanctified. He's even sealing us for the day of adoption, or, or not for the adoption, but for our inheritance. Um, so what, do you, what does this mean practically speaking? What do you do in this? Again, it's an opportunity for you to recognize the role of the Holy Spirit, that, that you need him. So when you come to the word of God, just express that, that I open up your word and I'm here, and I need your spirit. This is why almost every time when I pray, I really, before we preach or before I do anything with God's word, I, I ask if, if I remember to do it, I don't always happen every time, but I ask for fullness of the Holy Spirit. Not because I think I'm going to start speaking in tongues, or that maybe you will. That's not the point. But if we don't have fullness of spirit, how will I know that he, what he's revealing? In John 16, you have all of the passages where he's revealing the Son. Uh, I think it's in 15, uh, 15 and 16 and 17, or maybe 14, 15 and 16, those three chapters, that last night that Jesus is with his uh, disciples, he's talking about the, the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and reveal it to you. Um, I think he did that primarily through the writing of the New Testament for the apostles. But... I, as a reader of those, am in as much need of the Holy Spirit as the apostles were for writing it. Reveal your son to me. That's 1 Corinthians 2, right? Um, that I need the, the work of the Spirit to reveal Jesus to me. Um, so I have a constant need for the Holy Spirit, and I get to position myself before his word on a daily basis, and so do you, to express your dependency on the Spirit. All right, so there's biblical vision of God, the glory of God, the cross of Christ, the transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about our gospel purpose in Christ. What do we mean by gospel purpose? Why would we word it that way? By gospel purpose, we mean this, that we're trying to recognize our place in redemptive history that in which we live. Um, you and I are not in Abraham's place. God did not come to us and take us out of a physical land and say, I want you to travel to the land that I'm going to give to you. That's not our purpose. Right? We're also not in Israel's purpose. Israel's purpose was to go in and disperse seven nations greater than itself and then take over that very land and live there. That is not God's purpose for you and I to go do that. Um, rather, we are in the purpose that God has given to the church in Jesus. We're the church. And, and yes, like Abraham, we had a unique purpose. And like Israel had a unique purpose in God's redemptive plan. So we too have a unique purpose in God's redemptive plan. And ours is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, are there similarities between Adam and I'll start over here because this is the Old Testament. Wait, no, it's for you over here. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, uh, Acts 2, the church. Okay, here's our key people. Are there similarities in the way that God revealed himself here and expressed himself and the way that he interacted with these people in the Bible from left to right? Yes, what is the same? God never changes. He's the same. What is the same? Um, he always worked by grace. The Old Testament is not salvation by law. 
by obedience. It's salvation by grace. He told that to Abraham. Um, you believe me, I declare you righteous. Genesis 15. That hasn't changed from left to right. The fact that he works through sinners to accomplish his purpose, that's always the same. What changes, though? The things that we talked about. Um, Israel was supposed to go specifically, literally, physically, dispossess seven nations, destroy them, be the instrument of God's judgment on them. They were given 430 more years to live, those nations, in the land. God said, I'm going to give them 400 more years while you're in slavery. I deliver you now, my judgment. Be the instrument of my judgment. That is not you and me. Okay? So there are some things that are always the same from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. There are some things that change radically. If you get those mixed up, you can really cause some problems. In fact, you know what? People did that in the past. It's called the Crusades. They did. They believed they were the kingdom on earth. And therefore, they had the right to be God's instrument of judgment on the infidel. That didn't work out so well. Um, So, we are under the gospel purpose of Jesus Christ. And Jesus and the gospels primarily seem to have, you could summarize it maybe in in five different ways, ten different ways, but we, we summarize the work of Christ in three ways. Drawing in. He was always drawing in disciples. He was building them up, and he sent them out. Okay? So, let's talk about drawing in. Oh, and first, notice this. Here's a, this is the way that it's... Um, I, w- I want you to think about it this way. A biblical vision of God, and then a gospel purpose. Okay? Over here in the biblical vision, it's a statement. The glory of God. It's a statement. The cross of Christ. It's a statement transformation of life by the Spirit. Those are statements. They are propositions. When you get to the gospel purpose, drawing in, it's an action. Building up, it's an action. Sending out, it's an action. Now, why did we do that? Because that's the way salvation works. That's the way the Bible works. That's the way that Paul and the New Testament writers always put the Christian life out in front of the Christian. We believe these propositions, and on the basis of those statements, therefore we go what? We do. What do the Pharisees do? We do these things, and we get the statement, you're saved. We're not that way. The Bible's not that way. So we have propositions first, the glory of God, the cross of Jesus, transformation of life by the Spirit, and then we have action. And it's in the gospel purpose that we have this action. Drawing in. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign work. Uh, sovereign and saving work. Do you have a blank on that? Yeah. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. Um, go to John 6 real quick. We'll take a look at that. Familiar passage, John 6, 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How many people can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him? No one can. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, he says something similar. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This is God's sovereign work in what he does. Um, by drawing in, 
we don't mean drawing them into church attendance or drawing them into an evangelistic program, drawing them into some kind of a program that we have up. But what we're talking about is actually being savingly drawn into Jesus Christ, the person. That does not mean that we are sad when unbelievers come to church or attend a program. We want that. But drawing in does not stop until when? They are drawn savingly into Jesus Christ. So it's not merely attendance at something or do an event and get the community to come. That's not merely what we mean. We might do that. We hope that unbelievers will come and be a part of uh, and and watch what we are and do. Uh, But we mean drawing in to being saved all the way to Jesus Christ. Um, Also, another blank for you to fill in, Jesus Christ is God's unique object of attraction. Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. Um, John 12, Jesus says, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus made himself the issue. If I am lifted up, if I'm the one who's lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Um, 1 Corinthians 1 the word of the cross is to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. Uh, in, in verses 22 to 24, uh, to those who are called, Christ crucified is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. Chapter 2, 1 to 5 of 1 Corinthians, uh, your faith must rest not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God in the cross and that context. Um, so practically speaking, what does this mean for you drawing in? Um, As you reach out to unbelievers, don't only think, I need to get them physically someplace. But but they need to be brought to Jesus Christ. And then that's going to very quickly remind you that you can't do that. You get to participate, but you get to participate in this way. Ask yourself the question, what would the Holy Spirit love to use to awaken them? And you know what that is. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. So you get to the gospel in in your drawing in ministry that you have with your children. What would the Holy Spirit love to use to draw your son or your daughter to Jesus Christ? With your parents, with your siblings, what would the Spirit of God love to use? And your job is put that out as clear as you can, as clear as you can, as faithfully as you can. That's your job. Um, If you put out in front of them events programs to come to and they come and they keep coming and they just like being at those things do you does that tell you they're saved you, you don't know the only way that you'll know is if Christ crucified is lifted up in front of them and they say I believe I want him that's how you know and there's a change of life that comes um, building up Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Jesus worked hard to build up his disciples. We do that within the body of Christ. Um, I want to draw your attention to one verse, and I'll let you read the rest of it. But look at verse 16. He starts off talking about how Christ gave to the church, some as apostles, prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers in verse 11. And that's all for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, etc., etc. 
he gets down to verse 16 and he says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a very typical Pauline sentence. It's just, oh my goodness, he just said a lot of things. I'm pretty sure, I don't understand one of them, but he said a lot. Here's, here's the simple breakdown of it. Where's the subject of the sentence? It's at the very beginning. From whom, right here, the whole body, the body. Guess where the main verb is, where that body is doing something or it's having something done to it. It comes down towards the end of verse 16. It's the verb causes in the New American Standard. The body, dot, 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 all of that other stuff, just ignore it for just a minute. Causes, I don't know what it is in the ESV. Who Makes, makes okay. Makes the growth or makes the body grow or something like that. Okay, so there's the main subject. The body causes what? The growth of the body. Get this. Do you understand what he's saying? The body causes the growth of the body. The body causes the growth of the body. This is the way that Jesus intended and planned the church to be that the body would actually cause itself to grow. Now, everything else in there describes how that happens. Watch this. From whom the whole body, right here, being fitted and held together. Listen, the only way the body is going to cause the body to grow is if the members of the body are fitted and held together. The body can't grow if it's scattered and not connected. There has to be connection between the members. They must be fitted and held together. That's, a, that's an emphasis by Paul. He didn't want to just say fitted together. And he didn't want to just say held together. He wanted to say fitted and held together. It's got to be this tightness together. But then look what he says. By what every joint supplies. That's probably the better word is connection. By what every connection supplies. That means... When one member of the body comes into connection with another member of the body through fellowship, that connection has a supply in it, a power or something that God has put in it. So when we fellowship together and our lives are connected, there is a joint of supply there. So the body won't cause the growth of the body unless we come together and are fitted and held together. And as we touch that connection of supply comes out. Now watch this. According to the proper working of each individual part, that's you. Whose responsibility is that you work according to the way that you're supposed to work? You. That's why you shepherd your heart. That's why you make sure you are a godly woman. Because when you put your life into connection with somebody else in the body, there's a point of supply that takes place as we are being fitted and held together, which allows the body to cause the growth of the body. That, I mean, this is, that'll preach, verse 16. That's amazing. Now, where does this, what is the ultimate goal for the building up of itself? And this building up of itself is in love. It's in love. And where does all of this come from? Very first part of the verse. From him. From whom? Okay? So there's the building up. Now, I'm going to touch on this practically speaking here for a moment. I bet when you think of building up, you primarily think of your own building up, personally. I, I need to be built up in Jesus. Don't stop thinking about that. 
That's right. How often, though, do you think about, I need to be connected with others so that the body grows? Because that's a biblical idea here in verse 16. I must be connected to others so that the body can grow. So add that to your idea of what it means to be built up. Yes, I must be working. I must be an individual part that works according to the way I'm supposed to work. But all of this is so that the body gets built up. Lastly, sending out. What's the connection between drawing in, building up, and sending out? Um, these three things are very important. Um, churches, if, if, if they don't keep their sites intentionally on all three of these, they gravitate towards the one that they, is most like their personality. Um, in other words, if we don't keep all three in front of us, we could become a church that fervently, busily invests itself to draw in sinners through personal evangelism or evangelistic programs, etc. And that's what we'd be about. We might not give thought to what we should do with them once they come. Or we could become a church that fervently, busily sets before the body all of the time, Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, and then there's a neglect of the lost. Or we could become a church that fervently, busily sends every single believer to whatever gospel desire they want, and we just mobilize people. We just mobilize people into the community to do their social the things that they want to do and to preach the gospel way over there without giving thought to what's their character like? Are they qualified for this? And so what drawing in, building up, and sending out does is it allows us to hold on to all three and th- try to think holistically in this sense. That yes, you must be drawn into Jesus Christ and you must be a part of the building up of the body that's going on and you must be sent out. Not one without the other two In fact, there's so much overlap in this. You know what Jesus did? One of the best ways he built up his disciples was by sending them out. So it's not rigidly sequential that you have to be drawn in. You do have to be drawn in on this sense. You have to be saved. But then building up, it's not like you build up, build up, build up, build up. Okay, I give you a diploma on building up. You don't have to be built up anymore. And now you get to be a sent one. No, you're constantly being built up and being sent out. So those two are not um, rigidly sequential. Um, God has always been ascending God. He sent Moses. He sent Isaiah. He sent Jeremiah. He sent Ezekiel. He sent John the Baptist. Jesus Christ was sent by his sending father. Um, If you read through the Gospel of John, you will find the word send or sent 50 times at least. I encourage you to read through the Gospel of John in one sitting and just circle the word send or sent every time you see it. The Holy Spirit is even referred to as the sent one in John 14, 15, and 16 by Jesus. And then Jesus finally says to his disciples, as I have been sent into the world, so I what? Send you. Okay? Uh, Practically speaking, what does this mean? One of your main ways of seeing yourself is as a sent one. You, need, you and I need to wake up every day and we need to say, I am sent today by Jesus Christ into this world. And as I sent one, I will not leapfrog my house. But these little ones and this big kid that I live with, I will be a sent one to him and to them. Right? 
Your identity, that's my identity. My identity is a sent one. My identity is a witness of Jesus as a sent one. Okay? Here's the genius of God. Listen to this awesome program that he established for uh, sent ones, for evangelism. That you would live with the people who do not yet know the gospel um, seven days a week. That you would live in a neighborhood with people that you see a little bit potentially every day or, or multiple days of the week that you would go to work and work with somebody who's not a believer every single day outside of Sunday. That is a far, that, 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 is, that is an amazing strategy that you would be in the world as a sent one and the church can and should also program an event to draw in. But let's not, let's not fool ourselves. A one-time event where you invite people in might be effective, might be used by God. That's how I got saved. I wasn't going to church, and you weren't going to get me anywhere near a church. So it's important. But let's not lose sight of the fact or diminish thinking that, you know, my neighbors... I don't... I don't here's, here's the concern I have. That if you, if you do events, a believer can think, I went to the event, I served at the event, I even invited somebody to the event, and I've done my job when I have no idea if whether or not they're being faithful in their own house, faithful in their neighborhood as a sent one, faithful at work as a sent one. The, the, the first things first, right? First things first. Live as a sent one where you are. And then where there are events or things to participate in, participate in them. Feel free to do that. As a church, if there's any place that we can grow, it's on the event side. We should do more. It's hard to figure out how to do that always when we don't have a property because we have to rent it again and we have to find it on a time when it's not available, that the school's not using it. Those aren't good excuses. But in the meantime, be, live as a sent one where you are. Be faithful in that sense, okay? So there you have it. A biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. Ladies, that's a, I opened up the fire hose and I, I gave it to you and I went 10 minutes longer than I was supposed to. So... I'm so sorry for that. But um, I'll, I'll be around if any of you need to get your little ones and you want to ask questions or have other things you want to talk about, you can certainly do that and let's pray, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would impress us more and more with your glory and with the cross of your son and that we would be amazed at this awesome Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness who is in the process of working out our holiness more and more. And Father, we pray that you would help us to act because these realities about who you are as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit do not lead us into a static, motionless life. They lead us into a vibrant, active life of drawing in, building up, and sending out in the gospel. Uh, Lord, please meet these ladies where they are at. Help them to have hope and courage in the gospel, recognizing that though they are not where they need to be yet, They are not where they used to be. And so, God, I pray that you would give them much encouragement from your word today as we all fight to know you better through your son and we fight to say no to our sin. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, ladies.